So let's generate our motivation. So when teachings occur, there's a lot of communication going on. And it's not just one person speaking and other people listening, but it's how somebody is speaking, for what purpose they're speaking, and how people are listening and for what purpose people are listening. So there's people who come to teachings and uh, they're kind of there and kind of not. And the teachings go in one ear and out the other because they're not really paying attention or that interested. So that creates one kind of ambience. There's another uh, kind of ambience when people come and uh, the first group were like upside down pots and the second group is like a pot with a hole in the bottom. So they hear the teachings, but nothing really goes in. It leaks out the bottom. If you ask them the next day what it was about, they really can't tell you. So that creates another kind of teaching environment. And then there's other people who come and they want to learn Buddhism so that they can negate the ideas so that they can debate and show how Buddhist ideas are ridiculous. And so these people aren't really interested in the Dharma. They're more interested in arguing about philosophy. So that creates another kind of environment at the teachings. Needless to say, those three types of people and those three types of environment uh, are definitely lacking. And then there's another way to do it where people come and they're sincerely interested in the Dharma and they have the aspiration to come and become fully awakened Buddhas. And so when the audience has that aspiration and the teacher has that aspiration, then there's something quite special that happens. And the Dharma teachings really come alive for both parties. And so it's for that reason, take a minute or two and really cultivate the bodhicitta motivation now in your own mind to help create a a really wonderful environment for listening and learning the Dharma.
So we often think that in a teaching it's all upon the teacher, you know. They're the ones who have to prepare and plan things out and teach and make sure people understand. Uh, But when you give talks, you begin to realize, no, it's not just the person who's speaking, it's the audience too, because the audience can bring out different things in a speaker. And if the audience is kind of sitting there like, then the speaker gets like that too. And if the the audience is like, then the speaker's like, forget it. (laughs) And uh, if the audience is really interested and paying attention and they've prepared beforehand so they anticipate what's going on in the teachings and they're really listening, then it creates a whole different kind of environment. Okay, so it isn't just up to the teacher preparing and making things happen. It's up to the audience as well to prepare and to to listen in a proper way. Okay, so here we are, still on the foundation of Buddhist practice. We're we're getting there. We're approaching the end of the book, slowly, but we're getting there. Okay, so we're on page 274, about halfway down. We've been talking about karma and the four uh, aspects of, or four parts of karma that need to be complete for it to be uh, a complete action that can throw a rebirth. And then last time we were talking about the different kind of results. The maturation result, which is the body that you're born into. The causally concordant um, experiential result, which is uh, that you experience something similar to what you caused other people to experience. The causally concordant um result in terms of habitual result, in terms of the habitual tendency to do the action again, and the environmental result, you know, the kind of place where we live, you know, where we're born and then we want where we wind up living, okay? So karma influences all aspects of our life, and uh, this is how we Uh, create our experience. One of the ways we create our experience is by the actions we do, physical, verbal, mental actions. Yeah, so we have to remember when there's uh, suffering, instead of saying, why me? uh, Take up the book on the chapter on karma and read about the non-virtuous actions. Or take up... um, uh, Dhammarakshita's book, The Wheel of Sharp, Sharp Weapons, and you'll find it explains different things that we do to, to create suffering results. Uh, when we're happy and things are going well, instead of becoming uh, complacent and feeling entitled 
then keep studying the the chapter on virtuous actions and how to create virtuous karma so that we can continue to create those actions and create the cause for well-being. So it's, it's up to us. Yeah, it's up to us. And, uh, you know, like the old saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So people can teach us about karma, and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can explain things over and over again and write so many texts educating us about karma, but they can't crawl inside our minds and uh, press the stop button when we're about to do something harmful and press the uh, go button uh, to inspire us to do what's virtue. All of that has to be done by us. Nobody else can do it for us. Okay. So sutras and texts all agree on which actions are virtuous and which actions are not, although they may have slightly different presentations of their specific results. You know, so the presentations may be slightly different, but they're still very, very much the same. Okay. Also, some texts describe karma in a simplistic manner as if only one action produced a complex situation, okay? And so you'll hear things like, people will say, oh, uh, you know, Joe kills Janet in this life, so next life Janet kills Joe, as if it were fated and it's predetermined and it's got to happen and, you know, and karma is not like that, you know? It's too simplistic to talk about, uh, you know, two people being locked together like that as if it's predetermined, as if neither one of them has any choice about the actions they do in the future life. That's not the case at all. If it were the case, then we would never, ever get out of samsara, you know, because we would never be able to transform our motivations. And we would never be able to restrain negative actions and generate good ones because it would all be somehow cast in concrete. Yeah. So really when you talk about karma, here's where dependent arising really comes in because there's so many causes and conditions that have to come together to make something happen. And uh, I suppose... Uh, if you were, you know, they say the Buddhist is the only one who knows all the causes and conditions. But I would suppose if you were a Buddha, it would be so many you couldn't even count them. Okay. So, uh, you know, sometimes in teaching karma to children or, you know, to, to some people who've never heard of it before, it's explained in a very simplistic way. But that's not really how it it operates, okay? I mean, it's definite, for example, that non-virtue creates suffering and virtue creates happiness. But exactly how something ripens and the exact uh, configuration of different elements and so on, so many factors need to come together. Yeah? So it's kind of like uh, 
you know how they say if the butterfly flaps his wings in Singapore, it can change uh, what we do in this country. Maybe that's what we need to do on November 3rd, have all the Singaporean butterflies flap their wings. <laughs> you know, and it'll change, it'll make the election happen in a certain way. But, you know, okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it is getting the point across that subtle, you know, things can really have a very, very big in, uh, impact. And I think I told you about the story of one of the inmates that I wrote to uh, for many, many years, uh, who, when he wound up in prison with a 20-year sentence, started, uh, and he was young at the time he got the 20-year sentence, like late 20s, you know, around 30, and like, so the really good part of his life, he's going to be locked up. And he said he, he went back and he started, uh, you know, Okay, here's how I got busted. And then what were the causes and conditions how I got busted? It was very interesting because he had done tons of drug deals before. And he was at this time, he was going to kind of retire and go live in another country. He had enough, you know, he had a lot of cars, he had money, and you know, so he was going to stop. But an opportunity came up to do one last quick one that looked like it would be very um, go very well and be very profitable. That's when he got busted. Okay, so he started with that, you know, like what made me do, try and do one little more quick one to get more money when things had actually been going quite well and I didn't need to do that. And then he started tracing it back how he got involved in the drug business to start with what he was looking for in his life because uh, he was apparently a big one. He had a lot of status because he was wealthy and of course lots of friends because he could, they could get drugs from him and borrow his cars and so forth. Yeah, and so he started checking out all these things you know, and really going back in the past into when he was a little kid and decisions he made when he was a kid. And he came up with this um, seemingly insignificant, or no, seemingly unsupport, unimportant decisions, or suds, seemingly unimportant decisions, you know, and began to see how all those small decisions created the whole, you know, one thing led to another and another and brought in this and that, and there he was with this 20-year sentence. Okay, so, um, yeah, it's interesting sometimes to look at our lives and look at the seemingly unimportant decisions that we make and what kind of effect they have had on us and why we made those specific decisions. When we were in um, Taiwan last spring at the ordination, I was just like totally blown away being able to participate in the, in the ordination and be in an environment where so, people had such amazing motivations and such faith in the Dharma. And I was kind of going like, what did I do to be here? You know, how did I create the karma for this? Because, 
You know, it wasn't done in my childhood. <laughs> yeah. But then I started, as I, as I, you know, started looking in the past, I could see certain times in my life where I made certain decisions that they were very unimportant decisions in the whole scheme of things that turned out to be very important decisions because having made the decision to do that, then this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Whereas if I hadn't done that, it would have been an entirely different outcome in my life. Yeah, And yet at the time you're making those decisions, you're not aware of everything that, that is going to follow from going this way or going that way. Yeah. So it really points for the necessity to check our motivation very carefully. Okay. It is helpful to remember that the purpose of these statements is to give on, on karma is to give ethical direction to average people in ancient times. This is for the simplistic way of presenting karma. And that the precise functioning of karma is a complex matter. An action with all three, and here there's another way to describe it. Sometimes we talk about four parts, sometimes we can talk about three parts. So here's the, the three-part way. An action with all three parts complete, the preparation, which in the four-part scheme is the branches of the basis and the attitude, the performance, or actually doing the action, and the culmination, the completion of the action. That these three can produce all three results over a period of lives. So here are the three results are the maturation result, the body you take, the life you take, the uh, causally concordant result. That has two branches, but here it's just counted as one thing, and the environmental result. Okay, so the first Dalai Lama explains in a, uh, a book that he, uh, an Abhi, uh, Abhidharma book, actually, a commentary on Abhidharma Kosha that he wrote. And he said, if one asks, what is the reason that all the karmas yield the three results? The answer is, in the case of killing, for example, by the preparation, that's the first part of it, one causes another to suffer which yields the ripening result. In the actual act, that's the second part, okay, one kills, which yields the causally concordant result. And subsequently, the third part, one has extinguished the victim's vitality, and that yields the environmental result. Therefore, each action yields three types of fruit. Whenever they talk about fruit, they're talking about the result. Okay. So this does not mean that the preparation alone produces the ripening result. Yeah. And the action alone produces the causally concordant result and so on. Yeah. It doesn't mean that. Um, yeah. 
because a karma has to have all these branches complete to give rise to all these results. Okay, so linking parts of the action to specific results is a matter of emphasis. Yeah, it doesn't mean that if you just do the preparation, you're going to get a rebirth. uh, And if you don't do the other two parts, then you don't do the other results. It's not that. You have to do all three. And then it just kind of emphasizes which part of the action brings which result. But you need the entire action. So in another way of looking at it, the entire action brings all three results. Okay. So this does not mean that the preparation alone produces the ripening result and so forth. For a karma has to have all these branches complete to give rise to all these results. Linking parts of the action to specific results is a matter of emphasis. One destructive action may bring many results and many effects, and some effects may last for a long time. Yeah, so it's not just one action and one effect. Sometimes to have uh, one action can bring many, many um, results. In other situations, you need many, many actions, many karma to produce one result. And sometimes it's half-half, you know, okay? So, um, and then once the results come, some results may last a long time, some may last a short time. Yeah, it really depends. Uh, We went over already the factors that make a karma heavy. So it depends, you know, how how long the result lasts depends on you know, the kind of motivation you had, how you did the action, whether you purified it in the case of negative actions, whether you um, impeded its ripening in terms of the positive actions by generating anger, wrong views. Okay, so you can see there's so many different factors that, that come into it, and that's why they say only a Buddha fully understands it. Okay, the same is true regarding constructive actions. So one action um, can bring many effects and some effects last a long time. In other cases, many case karmas come together to make one effect. So it may be all sorts of things that happened in different lifetimes and then they just come together in this lifetime to produce uh, for example, the specifics of what your body looks like. So the ripening result, you know, that, that's coming. But then within which realm you're born into, what does your body look like? Are you tall? Are you short? Are, you know, what kind of body is your mind attracted to? Are you in a healthy body, a, an unhealthy body? And so here you get all sorts of other karmas ripening that are going to influence that. Although karma and its effects have been presented primarily in terms of non-virtuous actions, the same four branches, or three branches, are necessary to complete constructive actions, and the same factors apply to making a constructive action heavy. 
So you just go through what we did for the destructive actions and flip it, and then it's there. So it's, it's good to do that in your meditation. Don't just go through the negative actions. Go through all the virtuous ones, too. The results of virtuous karma are the opposites uh, of those for non-virtuous actions. It is important for us to contemplate the ten virtues, the branches that make them complete, and the factors that increase their strength, and the various results that come from them. Because when we uh, contemplate all these different aspects of a karma, in, in the, in, when we're doing it in terms of virtuous karma, then we learn how to make our virtuous karma really good virtue instead of just being you know, mediocre, haphazard, sloppy virtue. We learn you know, kind of how do you make it with all four parts complete? What are the ways to make your virtue strong? Okay, and so that's very helpful for our practice if we know that and we remember that when we're, um, you know, doing something. Uh, Same for non-virtue. If we know all the different factors, then that will help us, even if our mind is getting out of control, to at least be able to have some self-restraint in some of the factors so that we're not making our virtuous karma as strong or as heavy. Okay? So very helpful. We, we need to meditate on this. Yeah. So when you're doing retreats such as Vajrasattva retreat or you're doing um, the prostration nundro, doing the, you know, Prostrations to the 35 Buddhas. Very, very helpful to meditate on all these things while you're doing the purification because it really goes together to to strengthen the purification and to strengthen the, um, the power of making a determination not to avoid, um, to avoid certain actions in the future and to do other, you know, virtuous actions in the future. Okay, the shorter um, exposition of action, which is a, a sutra and the Manamunjakaya, one of the, um, uh, the Pali suttas. So this sutra speaks of pairs of opposite actions and their contrasting results. In each pair, the destructive action leads to an unfortunate rebirth and the constructive one to a fortunate one. Okay, so this is, if you pull out the Majjhima from the library, it's Sutra number 135, so you might want to take a look at it. Okay, so um, when we are later born human again, we will experience the causally concordant and environmental results of an action. Okay, so here it's going through some of them. Injuring sentient beings brings poor health and illness. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, if you interrupt other people's health and well-being physically, then you're creating a cause to have illness and, and difficulty, health difficulties. Okay, now, having said that, We also have to realize that just the fact of taking this body, we're going to have health problems. 
okay? So, you know, because that's the nature of this body. It's going to happen to all of us. How it happens and how severe the health problems are and what kind, that will be influenced by the destructive actions that we do. Okay, but once having taken a samsaric body, there's no way to, to get around having health problems except to not take them again in the future. Okay. Refraining from causing injury to others brings good health. Okay. So when there's little bugs crawling all around and we take care of them and we bring them outside, we're creating the cause for good health. Yeah. When we... Um, uh, you know, that's just refraining from, from harming them. When we really extend ourselves and help take care of people who are sick or injured, you know, that's creating a lot of virtuous karma. An angry and resentful character leads to being ugly. That makes sense too, doesn't it? When you're angry and resentful, yeah, when, when you see people who are really mm, uh, ruminating on their anger and resentment, uh, do they have pleasant expressions on their face? No. Yeah. No. So you can see it right, right in this life even. So it, will have, it brings that result in future lives too. Refraining from anger, hostility, and resentment especially when we're criticized, results in being attractive. That makes sense, too. If, you know, if you don't fly out when, off the handle when somebody, you know, says good morning in, in the wrong way to you, and you take it as criticism, even though they're just saying good morning, let alone the times when they're really criticizing you. Um, but if you can handle all this, then... Yeah, even this life, your 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 complexion, your face is is very pleasant. Yeah, I mean we can tell when people are in bad moods, can't we? Yeah, they radiate it. <laughs> okay. Envy and begrudging the achievements and honors of others leads to having little influence and people not listening to or paying attention to our words. Okay, so you envy other people. Yeah, you don't want them to have the uh, achievements that they have or the honors that they have. You're jealous. Okay, so when you, have, when you are a person like that, even in this life, are people going to like you? <laughs> no, okay? So needless to say, in future lives, then you have little influence and people don't pay attention or they don't listen to your words. Yeah, because the words are resentful and hostile and you know, quite unpleasant to be around. Refraining from envy leads to gaining influence and respect. Okay, so what's that book? How to, um, it was one of those how-to books for many, many days. 
Yeah, yeah, how, how to make friends and influence people, okay? So here he needs to put in these karmic things, like, yeah, you want to influence people? Don't envy them. Don't begrudge their attainments. If you do that, you'll create the karma to, to be able to influence them. Yeah, if you tell the truth, yeah, instead of lying and covering up the thing, different things, then uh, people will believe your words. So I don't know, I never read that book. Do you think he mentions karma in there? Or does he just teach you how to put on a good face so that you convince other people that you are what you aren't? It does? It has good advice? Oh, very good. Okay, okay, good. So it, it wasn't one that we see modeled nowadays <laughs> in the government by politicians. Yeah. So that's nice. I'm glad. Because it was quite a famous book way back when. Yeah. That's good. Stinginess leads to poverty. That certainly makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, we hang on to our our own stuff. We don't want to share it. We don't we aren't generous. Then of course it comes right back. We're we're poor ourselves. And generosity brings wealth. But it's strange how we usually think generosity means I'll be poor. Because if I give, then I won't have. Whereas if I'm stingy, then I'll be rich because I can collect more. So the way ordinary worldly people think is exactly the opposite way to how it functions karmically. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it shows how stupid we are. Mm. Be obstinate and arrogant and not showing respect to those worthy of respect. Anybody here get obstinate and arrogant? Okay. Oh, some of you look so innocent. You never do. Okay. Uh, and not showing respect to those worthy of respect results in a lack of social status, educational and employment opportunities. Yeah. But we can see even in this life, if we're obstinate and we're arrogant and we don't show respect to those worthy of respect, yeah, are, are we going to have... Uh, you know, a lot of opportunities. Are people going to want to hire us? Yeah. Are they going to want to admit us to a university? Or if we go to the to a uh, interview, an admissions interview, and we're arrogant and like just, you know, are they going to accept us? So even this life, you can see, that kind of attitude limits possibilities. Okay, but then we might wonder, but wait, there's some people who are obstinate and arrogant and don't show respect to those worthy of respect. I won't mention any names. Um, But they have social status, a lot of social status. So what's going on there? Well, in one lifetime, you know, they were respectful, they were humble, you know, they rejoiced in other people's good opportunities. That created the cause 
to have a high social status in this life. But in another life, yeah, they, they may have cultivated their um, obstinance and their arrogance and their uh, love to put down other people. And so that ripens as a habitual uh, um, a, a experience, causally concordant habitual result. Okay? And so those, you know, different kind of karmas ripen in this life. But you can see very clearly that that person who is acting that way now is beginning to crumble. Yeah? It's crumbling. Because, I mean, it's like you can only terrify people and, and pull a power trip on other people for so long. Yeah. I mean, some people can do it for a pretty long time, but all of them eventually, either they die or the power and the status crumbles. Yeah. Yeah, just to, uh, and today they talked about, who was it? One of the generals in the Mexican <laughs> army and some other high-placed official were just arrested for drug smuggling into the U.S. Okay, now if you talk, my Mexican friends will say, what else is new? You know, they know this stuff goes on all the time. They know the government is in cahoots with the narcos. But we don't often think that. And, you know, they, they got arrested and here they go. Okay. Being free from obstinacy, obstin, obstinacy, obstinacy, and arrogance and showing respect to those worthy of respect brings high status and many valuable opportunities. And so again, in, that, in this life we can see, you know, if somebody is a decent, honest human being, people like to help them. Yeah. Being interested in discerning virtue from non-virtue and what to practice, from what to abandon on the path. Le no, being uninterested <laughs> in discerning virtue from non-virtue and what to practice and what to abandon, from what to abandon on the path, leads to being dull and stupid. That also makes sense. Being interested in these, inquiring and learning about karma and how it works, cause and effect, that brings that makes somebody be born as a wise person, and it makes them wise in this life too. Is whatever we experience pleasant, painful, or neutral caused by previously created karma? Interesting question, and different people will give you different result, uh, answers about this. Although karma is not always the direct cause of our experience, it is involved. So the Buddha elicitates, this is in, again, a Pali Sutra, bile, phlegm, and also wind, imbalance of the three, and climate too, carelessness and assault with kama as the eighth. 
So that stanza is talking about different uh, causes that cause the result. So we just got with Geshe Targe, uh, Geshe Tafke, all about, we learned about bile, phlegm, and wind, okay? And how they are not the principal cause, they are not the substantial cause for our mind and our emotions, yeah, but they do they uh, do have an influence on the mind, and they do have an influence on the health of the body. Okay, yeah. So those have an influence. They're not the only thing. Yeah, but they have an influence. Imbalance of the three. So imbalance of you know any one of those, or imbalance of all three, that creates. Uh, different problems, yeah. Uh, climate that will influence physical and mental health. Like now, we're entering into the um, into winter, and so we're having less and less daylight. And some people get seasonal affect disorder, and they feel kind of down during the winter. And in that case, uh, I had a friend who had a special kind of light thing that he would sit in front of for a certain number of hours every day. And that really helped him, you know, different light things. Okay, so your climate can influence you. I noticed as a teacher that uh, when the weather was windy, you remember what windy days were like? Most of the days were windy. Most what? Most of the days were windy in my experience. Oh, okay. Windy days, the wind affects the kids. They are bouncing off the walls. They're completely running all over. They can't concentrate. They can't sit still. Okay. And it's just, and it's because you see it just on windy days. Okay. I mean, it's more kids are like active all the time. But windy days, really, it's just too much. And you do not want to be on playground duty on windy days <laughs> if you're a teacher. And you don't want it to be windy and rainy the same day, because then they can't go outside for recess after lunch. And then there's you're stuck in the room with them, and it's windy, and they are just crazy, totally crazy. And you come home like that, you know? <laughs> okay. Just ask any teacher, they will tell you. Okay. So, climate, carelessness will influence um, our experiences a lot if we're careless and we get involved. In negative actions, it brings a certain result. Yeah, assault. If we are assaulted, it influences our physical and mental health. And then it lists karma as the ace. So the three: bile, phlegm, wind, and balance of the three: climate, carelessness, assault, and karma. Okay. So some painful feelings occur from imbalance in the three humors, or imbalance in just one of them. Okay, bile, phlegm, and wind, or all three together. 
while others have to do with changing climate, reckless behavior, or assault. We know this from our own experience, don't we? Yeah? And it is considered true in the world also. So in saying this, the Buddha does not dismiss the role of karma in producing painful feelings or producing happy, you know, pleasant feelings. Rather, he rejects the claim that karma is the one and only direct cause for all painful feelings. So it's not just karma that causes it. There's all these cooperative conditions as well. Okay? And and karma plays a role in that too. Because karma... The, one of the main ways karma ripens is in terms of our feeling aggregate. So whether we feel pain or pleasure or neutral, happiness, suffering or neutral. Okay. So rather he rejects the claim that karma is the one and only direct cause for all painful feelings and affirms that karma plays a role in the feelings directly caused by the humors and external circumstances. So karma is given as the eighth cause of painful feelings, possibly indicating its dominant role when no physical disease or injury can be found as the immediate cause of a person's pain or illness. And we know sometimes, you know, people aren't feeling well. They go to the doctor. The doctor runs gazillions of tests. They can't come up with anything. Why that person is sick. Why they are in pain. So there, karma is a really strong factor in it. Yeah. In other um, situations, you have the climate and and the, the humors and these kinds of things, plus karma influencing Okay. Um, The Abhidharma explains that all painful physical feelings are due to karma, although they are not necessarily produced only by karma. Okay. And all uh, happy feelings are produced, uh, you know, are linked to virtuous karma although there may be other cooperative conditions that bring those feelings too. So is this saying that karma operates through, um, you know, the humors and through the climate and through people's behavior, or are they really separate entities? Like here's Uh, karma and then here's the climate and they're not related at all. Yeah, they're, they're different sets of causation, okay? So we have biological causation, um, chemical causation, physics causation, psychological causation, karmic causation. So they're different sets of causation. So it's not like karma makes your humors grow strong and weak. No, the, what makes your humors, or, or if we talk about, you know, synapses in your brain or genes being activated or whatever, any of those physical causes, that happens because of the biological system 
or the chemical system that is involved. Okay? It is not that karma ripens and makes your your uh, uh, brain synapses go flash, flash, or whatever. Okay? But karma does play a role in the experience that you have and what goes on in your brain, what goes on with the humors and all of that, that also can play a role. And your environment can play a role as well. Okay? So there's lots of different factors. And we can see that through our own experience. It's like, you know, maybe there's, uh, we, we got a virus or something, and so we don't feel well. Uh, okay, so that's, that's the physical system, you know, biological thing going on, but it's also the karmic thing, yeah. But then the degree of pain we feel, that may have to do with karma, but it also may have to do with how we're thinking when we're sick. Because if we, when we're sick and we sit there and go, oh, I'm so miserable, you know, then physically it seems to hurt more than if we, let's say, practice the taking and giving meditation or something like that, then even physically it doesn't seem to hurt so much. You know, and certainly we don't have as much mental suffering either. Yeah, so many, many factors. And we can also see how we're so influenced by our interpretation of what other people say. Yeah, so we may be, you know, feeling well, but if somebody comes along and says, oh, you don't look so well, then you start feeling not so well. Yeah? Whereas if you're, you know, kind of recovering from an illness or a surgery or an injury or something, and someone says, wow, you're looking really good, then, you know, you feel better. That's amazing. Amazing. Okay. So the mind, the present mental state, has a lot to do with it. Okay. Oh. There's a question online. Okay. It says, doesn't karma cause you to have the biological chemical system that you have? It ca- karma will influence what kind of body you're born into, and then, uh, you know, in terms of what realm, and then each realm, the bodies in each realm, have their own biological, chemical, and so on way of functioning. Okay. Our motivation influences the result of our actions. Even fabricated bodhicitta is a powerful motivation for engaging in the ten constructive karmic paths. Shankapa explains. Okay. And we just got done studying this in Shantideva's text. Isn't it? How much he raved about you know, if you have bodhicitta, it helps purify so much negative karma and it, you know, makes all your virtuous karma really, really strong. So needless to say, you know, if we have actual bodhicitta, engaged bodhicitta, it does have, 
But even we have contrived bodhicitta that we, you know, we spend our time generating every day. It has a very, very positive result too. Yeah. Whereas if we let our minds sink into, oh, the whole world's against me. Oh, nothing ever goes my way. People always take advantage of me. Nobody appreciates me. Yeah, if we if we let our minds sink into that, then that's gonna really lead us towards engaging in a lot of negative actions. Yeah, because we're so yeah, nobody appreciates me. Okay, so it's like we're miserable, and then we create the cause for more misery. Okay. But don't, it, that doesn't mean that necessarily if you're happy, you're going to create the causes for more happiness. Because sometimes our happiness comes from our greed and our attachment. Okay, so you're, you just won the lottery and you're going to go buy three yachts and a few beamers and, you know, get on, uh, what is it, Elton Musk's... Uh, rocket to the moon because now you can finally pay for it uh, <laughs> without taking out a loan. Um, yeah, and and so you get really jazzed. That kind of happiness that comes from greed and attachment is not is not going to create virtuous karma. Okay. Okay, so here's what Sokapa says. He's quoting the Sutra on the Ten Grounds, which says that those who have cultivated these ten virtues through fear of the dangers of cyclic existence and without great compassion, but following the words of others, will achieve the fruit of a shravaka. Okay? So you can see the motivation is important. So somebody creates virtue. The motivation is they're afraid of samsara, you know, and the dangers of samsara. They don't have great compassion for everybody else. They want to get out of samsara for themselves. Um, And they follow the words of others, of teachers who will teach them how to do that. So they will, um, you know, read... um, get the result of a shravaka. Yeah? Uh, there are those who are without great compassion or dependency on others and who wish to become Buddhas themselves. Okay? When they have practiced the ten virtuous paths of action through understanding dependent arising, they will achieve the state of a solitary realizer. Okay, so it's somebody without great compassion yeah, and they also don't depend on others in their last life. So they're, you know, what they call uh, sometimes rhinoceros solitary realizers. Although not all solitary realizers are the rhinoceros kind, only some kind. Okay. And they wish to become Buddhas themselves, but they practice the ten virtuous passive action through understanding dependent arising. Okay, they become a solitary realizer, but not a fully awakened Buddha. When those with an expansive attitude cultivates these ten virtues through great compassion, 
skillful means, great aspirational prayers, in no way abandoning abandoning any living being, and focusing on the extremely vast and sublime wisdom of a Buddha, they will achieve the ground of a bodhisattva and all the perfections. Okay, so there you see these are the causes necessary to uh, enter the bodhisattva grounds and develop uh, all ten perfections. Through practicing these activities a great deal on all occasions, they will achieve all the qualities of Buddhas. Okay? So, there it is, the instructions. We just got to do it. Yeah. Manana. <laughs> no, hopefully today. Okay, so the next section is on the ripening of karmic seeds. So our mind stream is home to countless karmic seeds, really countless. Our future rebirth is not due to the sum total of all these seeds, but to whichever seed or seeds ripen just prior to our death. Cooperative conditions, such as our present thoughts and emotions, and the events around us influence which karmic seeds ripen in the present. Just as a daisy seed will not grow into a daisy without proper fertilizer, heat, and water, karmic seeds will not ripen without certain conditions being present in our lives. A virtuous mental state enables seeds of constructive actions to bear fruits while non-virtuous thoughts and emotions fertilize the seeds of non-virtuous karma. Drinking and taking recreational drugs establishes conditions in life that facilitate the ripening of the seeds of destruction, destructive actions. Okay, so here you see there's a lot of conditions. Yeah, when we place ourselves in dangerous situations, yeah, we could easily be fertilizing the seeds of, uh, of negative karma that will lead to our receiving harm. When we put ourselves in good situations, we fertilize, you know, virtuous seeds. Okay. Then somebody is going to say, but I put myself in a good situation and I'm doing retreat and I still got sick. If that happens, then you see it as I'm purifying negative karma. Yeah. Through the force of my sincerity and wanting to purify this karma, which could have ripened in eons in the hell realm, is now ripening uh, by getting a cold or getting the flu or something. Okay, so you, if you think like that, then it makes purification happen. If you don't think like that, then you're just like everybody else, you know, complaining about being sick. So there's no purification there. It's just the ripening of karma. Okay, so Vasubandhu comments on which karmic seed is most likely to ripen at the time of death. Okay, so this is commenting uh, in a verse from the Abhidharma Kosha Baisa, his, his uh, 
uh, explanation of his treasury of knowledge. So actions cause fruition in cyclic existence. First the heavy, then the proximate, then the habituated, then what was done earlier. Okay, so this is the order it ripens in. So listen to how he explains this. In gen because we're going to have a poly explanation next, which is slightly different. Yeah. So Vasubandhu says, in general, heavy karma will ripen before lighter karma. That makes sense. Yeah. So if uh, in this life, if we create very strong uh, heavy karma, either virtuous or non-virtuous, that make that karma is quite likely to ripen at the time of death. Okay. Or it could be strong karmas from a previous life. Okay. But if two heavy karmas are equal in weight, and do not ask me how you know if they're equal in weight. Okay, please do not ask that, because I don't know if it's two grams of negative karma equals how many ounces of virtuous karma, okay? So it's just if two heavy karmas are equal in weight, the one whose potential was reinforced nearer to the time of death will ripen first, okay? So, you know, if somebody is dying and uh, if they have one prominent karma that's very heavy, that one will ripen. But if, if let's say there's a couple that are equal in, in weight, and let's say one is virtuous and one's not virtuous, but the, the atmosphere where they're dying, one person is, uh, you know, listening to mantra, and they have one of their Dharma friends kind of regard, reminding them of virtue and so on, and they're in a quiet, peaceful environment, then that will kind of make the virtuous karma ripen. Somebody else maybe is in the hospital, and the other person who's sharing the hospital room is watching an action film, you know, with people shooting each other up and clobbering each other and yelling and screaming and all kinds of really agitated uh, music and stuff like that. So that makes you know it easier for a non-virtuous karma to ripen. Or let's say they're dying and they think of, you know, oh, I'm so mad at my, you know, my relative. They did this 35 years ago, and here I am on my deathbed, and they haven't even called to apologize yet. I'm so mad. Then that will fertilize the negative karma. Okay, so if the potential, uh, the two potentials are equal, the action that is more habitual will ripen first. Okay, so if you had, uh, you know, the potentials were kind of, for, for ripening, were about equal, then the, um, the action that we do most often will be the one that will ripen, okay? If the person is equally habituated to both actions, the one that was done first, that was done earlier, will ripen, okay? 
So the Pali commentator Buddhaghosa describes the order in which karma uh, producing rebirth ripens at the time of death in a slightly different order. Okay, so he still says um, heavy karma is first. Okay, heavy karma, be it virtuous or non-virtuous, will ripen first. So that's the uh, same as what Vasubandha said. But then Buddhaghosa gives the example, the heaviest virtuous karma is the attainment of one of the dhyanas. So when you've uh, cultivated concentration to the level of dhyanas, that is called uh, an immutable karma, and at death it will ripen in you being born in that particular form realm, particular jhana. Okay, so that's the heaviest virtuous kind of karma. And the heaviest non-virtuous karmas are the five acts of immediate retribution, killing one's mother, father, or an arhat, wounding a Buddha, and causing a schism in the Sangha. So those ones, they say, if you do that and you don't uh, purify, you get a direct ticket to the hell realm, the worst hell realm. If there is not an exceptionally heavy karma, an action done very habitually will ripen. Okay? So, yeah. This one, uh, Vasubandhu, as the second one, said the proximate, what's uh, closest to the time of death, and puts habituation as the third, but uh, Buddha Gosa puts it as the second. Okay? So paying attention to our habitual behaviors is important. Having a regular daily meditation practice, making offerings, praising others, and reflecting on the four immeasurables are good habits to develop. Habitually lying to others, habitually losing our temper, habitually cheating others uh, become strong karmic forces that will propel us into an unfortunate rebirth if they ripen at the time of death. So we gotta pay attention to our habits. In the absence of a habitual karma, a death proximate karma, an action that is vividly remembered just before death, will ripen. So this is the one that Vasubandhu had as number two. Here it's number three. Okay, the memory is so strong that it pushes the mind in that direction. So that's why it's important to have uh, as much as possible a peaceful external environment and people who remind you of your Dharma practice and, and so on. If we're with people who have another religious tradition, remind them of the figures in that tradition. If it's a person who doesn't have any particular faith, remind them of their compassion and their good qualities. Okay. Okay. So, and so, you know, if you can see somebody starting to remember a very horrific uh, happening in their life, change the topic, direct their mind to something else. And then reserve karma is any other karmas not included above that is strong enough to bring a rebirth. 
In the absence of any of the above three, okay, so the heavy karma, the uh, karma that is um, habitual, and the, the death proxima karma cr uh, created closest to the time of death. In the absence of those three, a karma that has been done often will ripen at the time of death and project the next rebirth. Okay. The ripening of one karmic seed temporarily prevents the ripening of another. The ripening of the seed of a heavy karma means the seed of a lighter karma cannot ripen at that time. Because, you know, the heavy karma is ripening. It's like if you water the knapweed with a lot, a lot of water and you give it a lot of sunshine and so on, but you just put a few drops on the daisy, uh, you're going to get really good napweed. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and that goes also vice versa for, for virtuous karma. When a karma to be reborn in the formless realm ripens, all karmic seeds that could bring painful results are temporarily unable to ripen because beings in the formless realm do not experience feelings of pain. So all the negative karma causing pain, that's, they're not going to ripen in that rebirth. But they will ripen later if they're not purified. Those seeds remain on the person's mind stream until suitable conditions manifest for them to ripen. Similarly, when a karmic seed to be reborn as a hungry ghost bears its result, uh, karmic seeds to receive wealth are temporarily blocked for ri from ripening. These seeds are not destroyed or lost, but will ripen later when appropriate conditions are present. So karma does not disappear like our computer files do, or at least like some of mine do. Some of yours, mine disappear, it's amazing. Yeah. Does it happen to other people do? Yeah, they just, oh, no, not you, you're lucky. Okay. <laughs> Our karma will definitely bring results unless the seeds are inhibited from ripening. When the four opponent powers are applied to non-virtues sincerely and diligently, those seeds will become unable to bear a result or will ripen in a minor suffering or a suffering that lasts, uh, is not as intense and lasts a shorter time. Similarly, when strong anger or wrong views manifest in our mind, they impair the ability of seeds of virtue to ripen, and these seeds will uh, either not be able to ripen or will bring only a minor result because the anger and wrong views uh, inhibit their, them from ripening. Remember? So when you get angry, really stop and, and say to yourself, is the quote, quote, pleasure I derive from being angry, the feeling of righteousness I derive from being angry, is it worth destroying my virtue to have this feeling of righteousness? What do you think? Worth it or not? 
Yeah. To have the feeling of, you know, oh, this guy did this and I'm going to show him and, you know, blah. And, you know, we feel so proud of ourselves, but all we're doing is destroying our own virtuous karma. So it's good to stop and, you know, is it, okay, I'm doing this, is it worth that? Okay, in both cases above, yeah, um, the karmic seeds have not been totally eradicated. They are still present, but like damaged seeds, they are unable to bring their full results. Okay, so the four opponent powers counteract non-virtue. Yeah, uh, anger and wrong views counteract virtue. Yeah, so it leaves the seeds of either non-virtue or virtue damaged, but they can still ripen in some result, but just not as strong as they would have been if they hadn't been damaged. If the purification or the anger is very strong, the potency of the karmic seed is so damaged that even when appropriate conditions are present, it will not bear any result. Just as a burned seed cannot grow even when water, fertilizer, and sunshine are present. However, only direct non-conceptual realization of emptiness fully removes the seeds of destructive karma. Okay, so it's one thing to have the seeds burnt where they're, they're inactive, but they're still on the mind stream. And it's another thing with that uh, non-conceptual wisdom that completely removes them from the mind stream altogether. Yeah, so there's no, uh, they don't obscure the mind at all. When cooperative conditions are not present, karmic seeds may exist in someone's mind stream, but be impeded from ripening. For example, someone on the fortitude stage of the path of preparation has not yet abandoned the seeds for unfortunate rebirths. But those seeds cannot ripen into such rebirths because of the power of this person's inferential realization of emptiness. Okay, so it, that's a really good example of showing when the causes and uh, the, the conditions aren't there, the cause is, is not going to ripen. Yeah, and that's the reason they uh, give, at least in the... Uh, yeah, I think in both in both Sanskrit and Pali traditions, for arhats, they may still have the seeds of um, of propelling karma, the karma that can propel a whole rebirth. But because they've eliver, eliminated ignorance and craving, uh, those seeds cannot get nourished, and so they don't. They no longer take rebirth in samsara. Okay. So in the questions of Upali Sutra, oh, the questions of Upali Sutra speaks of a case in which a monastic with pure behavior holds malice towards another monastic with pure conduct. It says his great roots of virtue are diminished, thoroughly reduced, and completely consumed. Okay, so there's one monastic with pure behavior 
who messes up and is holding malice against another monastic with pure conduct. Okay? So this one who's holding malice, yeah, his roots of virtue, which means his virtuous karma, the, or the, vir- the seeds of virtuous karma, diminished, thoroughly reduced, and completely consumed. So diminish means that the result of great virtue becomes less, and the duration of its happy, happy result is shorter. But not all the good effects are stopped. Okay, so as malice stops, um, you know, the, uh, makes the duration of the happy result shorter, it makes it less happy. Um, yeah, it, yeah, okay, like that. And, but it, this person still has some good result of their karma. So the malice didn't totally. Uh, prevent the karmic seed of virtue from ripening. Okay, reduce, the second one, yeah, reduce means it can only bring a small pleasant result. So that's all you get, you know, a few minutes of feeling good or whatever. And consume indicates that a result cannot ripen at all. So, you know, which it is, you know, in that situation, whether the roots of virtue are diminished, thoroughly reduced, or completely consumed, that's going to depend on uh, the level of realization of that person who's getting angry, the level of realization of the person they're angry at, how angry or how much malice they were holding, whether they acted it out, and so on. On the other hand, the teachings of Akashamyamati Sutra okay, says that one of the benefits of dedicating merit for awakening is that the merit will not be consumed until awakening is attained, just as a drop of water that has flowed into the ocean will not be consumed. The Array of Stock Sutra, the Gandavyuha Sutra, says that bodhicitta and virtues associated with it cannot be extinguished by afflictions or polluted actions. Okay. So how are we to understand these seemingly inconsistent passages? Seems inconsistent, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, on one hand, your karma can be, uh, you know, diminished, reduced, or completely, you know, consumed. On the other hand, another one saying that virtue's not going to, uh, you know, finish its result, won't con- uh, finish until enlightenment. Another one is saying if you um, uh, create virtue, then it can't be harmed by afflictions like malice. So... You know, how do you fit all those different things together? So, how are we to fit, how are we to understand these seemingly inconsistent passages? Saying that merit dedicated for awakening will not be consumed until awakening is attained means that this merit will not finish bearing its effects until then. Okay? So, when we dedicate for full awakening, yeah, 
good results keep ripening from now until awakening. It doesn't get consumed. However, that doesn't mean that anger and wrong views cannot damage it. So if anger and wrong views come up, it will impede that that virtue, okay? Either by diminishing it, reducing it, or consuming it. Although they cannot destroy the merit completely, they can interview, interfere with when, how, and for, long, for how long it ripens. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the results of that merit, although impeded, will not finish until awakening has been attained. But we can certainly decrease it a lot if we practice malice. Anger can render merit that has not been dedicated for awakening incapable of bearing any results. So if we've dedicated it for awakening, even we get angry, it can still bear some results, but it is vastly limited. Whereas if we don't dedicate it, then it can be uh, made completely uh, um, unable to bear any result. Okay. For this reason, dedicating our merit for full awakening is extremely important. Saying that bodhicitta and the virtues associated with it cannot be extinguished by afflictions or polluted actions means that afflictions and karma cannot destroy bodhicitta to the same extent that bodhicitta can can harm them. It does not mean that afflictions and destructive karma uh, cannot damage our bodhicitta and the virtues associated with it at all. Okay, so afflictions, destructive karma can, can still damage our bodhicitta and virtues, yeah. Anger can harm our bodhicitta in two ways. We will not be able to generate new paths quickly, but we'll have to again accumulate the merit that produces them. And we will experience the undesirable effects of non-virtue. Okay, so saying that bodhicitta and the virtues associated with it cannot be extinguished by afflictions and pollution, polluted actions okay, means that afflictions and polluted actions cannot destroy them as much as bodhicitta has the power to overcome afflictions and to purify negative actions. But anger and malice and so on can still affect that bodhicitta. Yeah, because they say... um, yeah, that, that, that's one of the results. If you destroy your merit as a bodhisattva, um, if, yeah, then you have to go back and accumulate that much merit again before moving on to the next path or the next stage. Okay. Let's do the next paragraph, too. In addition to anger and wrong views, in the compendium of training, the Shikshashamachaya, this is Shantideva's other text, Shantideva points out that uh, other actions 
that damage the virtues of one following the bodhisattva path. Okay, so these are things we want to avoid. Staying with householders who have strong attachment to material possessions and entertainment. Why is that going to interfere with your bodhicitta? <laughs> kind of obvious, isn't it? Yeah. Boasting about spiritual attainments we do not have. That will certainly cause hindrances. And as a monastic, you lose your ordination. Okay, abandoning the Dharma by neglecting the Buddha Dharma and making up our own version of the Buddha's teachings. That's um, a root infraction of the Bodhisattva ethical restraints. Okay, so these, these are examples uh, of actions that can really uh, damage the virtues of somebody following the Bodhisattva path. Okay, so these actions also impede our progress along the path, even if we do virtuous practices. So it just slows everything down. Okay, studying this text, uh, uh, Compendium of Trainings, as well as Nagarjuna's Compendium of Sutras, uh, which also discusses the Bodhisattva path, is very helpful. Okay, so let's stop here. Uh, question. It says clarification. When it says, when born as a human again, we'll experience the concordant and environmental results. Mm -hmm. Don't animals experience environmental results? Yep. Uh, the follow-up is, so couldn't we experience karma created as a human, as an animal? Say that. When, when, when Basically it's saying, if we're born as, if we're, create the karma when we're a human, if we're reborn as an animal, do we get the results of that karma? It, if you create, kar the karma we create as a human can ripen in all of those different kind of results when we're born as an animal. Okay? Uh, but clearly, again, virtue will bring happy results and non-virtue will bring negative results. But yeah, surely one karma created while you're in one rebirth in one realm can ripen when you're in another rebirth in another realm. And another question, it's a different subject. Mm -hmm. Are the four results of karma, the external situations, our feelings in response to these, or both? Well, the, the one is our body and mind that we get. That doesn't mean that the karma moves all the molecules and uh, atoms together to make that body. It means that our mind is attracted to that particular uh, uh, rebirth, okay? So it's not, don't think that karma goes around and starts moving atoms and making the wind blow and stuff like that, okay? Karma is what attracts us to that kind of rebirth. Yeah. What was the other part of that question? Oh, Okay, but karma, you know, one of the chief ways it ripens is in our feelings of happy, unhappy, and neutral. That's one of the chief ways, yeah. So the karma, again, you know, does karma 
you know, make it so that, uh, you know, that particular individual is going to swear at me. My karma makes them swear at me so that I experience pain. No, my karma doesn't make them swear at me. Their ignorance and their anger make them criticize or swear at me. I experience pain from that as a ripening of my karma and as a result of my mental attitude and how I interpret the situation. I work on my, probably over many lifetimes, on my um, attachment um, to a body, you know, um, because when I'm in, when we are in the body, then what attracts, attracts us is, um, you know, is due to our attachment. Um, so when I counteract that over many lifetimes and don't have attachment um, to the body, where do I get reborn? I don't know. I feel a little bit lost there. <laughs> oh, well, okay. When you realize emptiness and you stop, uh, you stop the ignorance and the 12 links that creates the polluted karma, uh, and you stop the craving and clinging, the eighth and ninth uh, links, okay, then if you're practicing uh, the fundamental vehicle, then you become an arhat and you stay in your blissful samadhi and emptiness. If you're practicing the bodhisattva path, then um, you can generate what they call a mental body. And then you can go to the pure realms, you can manifest in realms in samsara to benefit other sentient beings. I asked a friend of ours who's a psychiatrist about the high incidence of suicide in doctors and dentists and you know there's many many causes and conditions of course and mm -hmm. a person's you know personality but she kept coming back to the fact that you know doctors are trained to identify what's wrong with us give it a name and then give us a treatment and especially for people who are more solitary and they're not working with colleagues and talking about things it all falls back to them that the patient doesn't get well and they get sick and they get, you know, they die. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if the training of doctors, even for Western doctors, mm -hmm. they had some karma in their training because then it <laughs> would take everything off of them. Yeah. I mean, it's good for the patient to know this, but for uh -huh. the doctor too, to know that at a certain yeah. point, they can't figure out what's going on because this is a karmic ripening. Yeah. Yeah. And when a, when a patient dies, you know, if the doctor's doing everything they can, it's not the doctor's fault. They don't accumulate negativity when somebody dies. Why does the person die? Because they were born. <laughs> yeah? So. Anything else? Okay, then we'll stop here. <laughs>